Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and living without romantic love. Every episode, you get a new pair of feminists to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds. Today, you've got me, Rebecca Onion, a senior editor at Slate. Later in the show, I'll be joined by author Amy Key. Before I picked up Amy's new book, which is called Arrangements in Blue, I didn't know her work. And although I do love Joni Mitchell's album Blue, which provides a frame for this book and inspires its title, I'm not usually a huge reader of music writing. But what I was interested in was the personal story. Amy describes herself as someone who had to learn how to live without romantic love, which is what she calls it. In the first few pages of her wonderful book, she describes her first encounters with Joni Mitchell's record when she was a teenager, when she would do what she calls test her feelings against blues sentiments, looking forward into the future. She writes, While I have certainly bled for romantic love, I've largely found myself living without it. The last time I had a boyfriend, I was 22. I'm about to turn 44. In my early years of knowing Blue, I thought I was at the beginning of romantic love's presence in my life. All beginnings incorporate the potential for an end. I just had no idea how rapidly I'd get there. The rest of her book is about the impact that this lack has had on her life and how she's come to terms with it. It's writing about romance from a point of view that you rarely see explored, but one that I think a lot of people probably find more resonant than you might think. After a quick break, Amy Key is joining me on The Waves. Hey, Waves listeners. If you're loving the show and you want to hear more, subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. While you're there, check out our other episodes, too, like last week's about impossible beauty standards. Welcome back to The Waves. I'm joined by Amy Key, who's author of the memoir Arrangements in Blue. Amy, welcome. Hi, so nice to be here. Of all the topics in the world, uh, this one seems like a really tender and vulnerable one to write about. And It's interesting because in reading the book, I kept thinking maybe even more so than like a memoir that's about how horrible your mother was or something or like, (laughs) you know, like a memoir that's about uh, a single trauma or abuse or something. Um, This is really complicated. Uh, How did you talk yourself into writing this um, and get past anxiety about writing it if you had it? I know that you wrote in the intro, I worry that writing all this down brings the risk of damage and gives people too much information. It's interesting that you asked if I had to kind of talk myself into it. And I guess the answer is I did have to do that. But it was one of those, you know, there's this um, Aeneas Nin quote where she says the risk to to stay in the bud was great, was less than the risk it was going to take to blossom or something along those lines. Yeah. And I felt like I was at a, a kind of gateway where there was going to be pain either side of the kind of act of writing. Either I was going to hold it all in and it would be an internalised pain or I was going to open out and invite other people to talk about it with me. 
one of the reasons I think I decided to open out and invite people to talk about it with me was because I I think I acknowledged I hadn't been particularly honest with myself about how the absence of romantic love had made me feel and how I had been kind of holding space in my life, if you like, for the arrival of a romantic relationship that would give my life meaning. Um, so I, I, I just felt, I felt like I wanted to be, yeah, I felt like if, if there's going to be pain in either direction, I'm going to choose the one that involves openness. It's so interesting because you can tell that you've been thinking about it for years. It seems full of these like moments where you sort of like describe ways that you thought about it in the past and then sort of like have realizations about how those ways were affecting your life in different ways. And I think that's what makes it really rich and good. And one of the things that I really liked about the book is the way that you kind of address causation sort of seemed to go back and forth between analyzing past experiences that you had or like dynamics of your childhood home or things that happened when you were younger and how that might have to put it in like a brutal like way caused the situation. Um, but then sort of going back and saying, but I don't think that was it. And it sort of really tracks your thought process around your life in an interesting way. Could you talk a little bit about that? Like how you chose how to sort of interweave these like questions of causation within the story? In the book, what I wanted to do is explore almost like all domains of life that I supposed were privileged for romantic relationships to test whether that was true or not. And to kind of force myself to have faced the reality of the fact that actually life in all its domains could be really good and satisfying, even if you don't have a romantic relationship. So, you know, for example, the idea that true intimacy comes through sexual romantic love rather than other forms of intimacy that might um, arise through communities that you develop or your relationship to the natural world or platonic platonic love and friendships or the idea that home is where the heart is because that is where family is well what if what if you don't in air quotes have a family in your home does that make your home a, a lesser home and when i think about how how much i cherish my home and the way that um, or the pleasure I can get through the making of a home that is designed just for me, but also like for my cats and also for entertaining and inviting people in. It helped me, I guess, break down some of the assumptions that I'd made about a kind of a lack of integrity in these domains of life that I felt romantic love had kind of, you know, withheld from me. Like I, I felt like my life didn't have like the stability and the integrity that other people's did. But actually, when I looked, I was like, uh, no, I, I can get all of these things and I can negotiate those things for myself. And actually, it means I don't have to deal with a lot of stuff that other people have to deal with. And I can overcome the things that have inevitably informed my romantic relationships. It's not to deny that those, you know, the traumatic experiences are going to have 
an impact on how you seek, experience, um, leave, stay in in particular relationships. But I am not, I am not any one of those individual experiences. The way you sort of just described it is like very positive is like the most uh, sort of like boiled down way I can put it. But in the book itself, you're working through a lot of grief. It's also a book that also has like a lot of honesty around loss in it kind of mixed together with the realizing that it can be okay. One of the goals I had when I was writing was not to um, arrive at really simplistic conclusions at the end of the book. Actually, what I am documenting is a lot of grief and pain and shame about being single and trying to navigate those feelings, but also confront the the kind of rigid thinking I think that I I probably had held on to for a long time about I don't have romantic love because there's something wrong with me or I don't have romantic love because this bad thing happened or I don't have romantic love because society is conspiring against me I wanted to kind of show the blood and guts of it rather than say it's really, really terrible, and and here here's a document of like pain, and there's no hope in it. Or to say, oh my god, it's so life is so great as a single person. You should feel really empowered. You don't even need to think about romantic love. You can reject it entirely because that isn't the experience that I have. It's not how I feel, and I think allowing for ambivalent feelings about romantic love allowing somebody to say I'm okay without a romantic partner my life can be good but actually I know that it will it causes me pain sometimes and it will in future you know I hope for romantic love in my in my lifetime as as it were those two things can be held at the same time but I do think that we're kind of pressured into taking sides you know either I'm going to reject it or I am going to pursue it no matter what that's kind of I didn't really want to represent those polarized viewpoints I wanted to kind of say the reality of my life is that I'm kind of in this middle space where sometimes I feel I do kind of feel empowered because as a person who lives alone and doesn't have to consider a romantic partner, I can make lots of choices for myself um, and I can plan my own future, but it can be brutally lonely at times. I you know, worry about all sorts of things that other people might not have to worry about, like, oh my God, if my mum dies, who, who's going to hold my hand at the funeral? Or if I break my leg, who do I call to come and help me? Or I really love to go on holiday and, you know, spend a lot of money, but I've got nobody who can afford to do that with me because they want to do that with their romantic partner. It's all of those kind of unseen um, elements of a life that's largely lived alone that I think, you know, that people take for granted in their relationships. Possibly it's because I'm a socialist, but I really liked how much you talked about money and debt in this book. And that kind of attaches to what you were just saying about sort of like unseen aspects of basically being unpartnered. Um, Can you say a little bit more about your choice to talk as much as you did about money and debt? Talk about vulnerability. I think with part of me talking about debt was to try and like nail myself to the page in a little bit um, because it's going to be something that I think I always 
struggle with to to a certain extent. I've always found it really, really frustrating when people aren't upfront about money and the way that they've been privileged with regards to money. And, and obviously that can affect them in lots of different ways. It might mean that they've got secure housing or they might find it easier to, uh, you know, th- they might find it um, possible to pursue different career choices than, than other people. And I'm also aware that, like, I have a lot of privilege myself in my financial situation. Now I've got, um, you know, a full-time secure job. I I don't have to worry about those sorts of things, but I have experienced like bone crushing debt. And I thought that that would stand between me and a secure future. And one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about that in the book is because we have such an imbalance of power between the landlord economy and the rental economy in the in the UK um, and people treat homes as property for the purpose of generating capital and I just find that really really disturbing that that's become a like a well it hasn't become it's, it's been for centuries but like a social norm that that you know we should buy houses and generate money off them other people should pay our mortgages for us um, and I really kind of fulsomely re- reject that um, and think that you know secure housing should be a basic human <laughs> right and only should we have you know safe secure housing we should be able to make houses and homes our our own yeah our own homes and so many people are denied that opportunity and I felt being honest about money like how I managed to buy a flat um, and also all of the kind of grotty um, <laughs> experiences with spending more than I had and what might have driven those desires was an important part of the story I had to tell. Can you say a little bit more about your analysis of how that ended up happening? I couldn't get what I wanted, which was love. The way that I tried to love myself was by buying things that I thought might either make me feel good in that moment and like give me that dopamine hit or somehow make me more lovable, more attractive, more kind of available to meet someone. And obviously that's a complete, like, (laughs) it was a completely... You know, it wasn't going to happen that way. And what did happen is I got into a lot of debt. It was very, very incredibly stressful, um, made me terribly unhappy and brought quite a lot of risk to my ability to plan for the future. The way I was spending was almost like a form of self-harm, really, because I didn't have a lot of faith that I was going to have a good future. We're going to take a break here, but if you want to hear more from Amy and myself on another topic, please check out our Slate Plus segment. Today, we're talking about Joni Mitchell's album, Blue. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, and bonus content of shows like this one. To learn more, go to slate.com slash thewavesplus.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to The Waves. I'm interested in what you wrote in your book about sort of life milestones, moments in adulthood that sort of mark passage. And it's interesting because I feel like at least in the American press, there's been a lot of discussion about sort of delayed adulthood. I don't know if you guys have this (laughs) discussion now as well. But this question of when are millennials going to buy homes or, you know, millennials are waiting till a later date to have kids or these sort of like markers that we talk about a lot that are sort of like ingrained in social science to a point where they become something that you know, (laughs) social scientists will use as data to show like how generations change generation by generation. And your book helped me realize like how romantic love is tied up in all of that, like how it feels like even in our like understanding of the life course, there's like certain milestones that if you don't quote unquote, achieve, whatever that means, a partnership, then it feels like you haven't hit them, um, or things haven't changed. So I'm curious to hear you say more about that. Um, It's such an interesting place to talk about how cultural structure sort of like affects your mind, um, or like affects your sense of the passage of time. I guess because I was brought up in this very sort of heteronormative, white Western culture, where even though I was, you know, I, I, I was informed by like a lot of feminist thought, I kind of just assumed that certain things would happen. Like I would get a monogamous long-term romantic partner and there might be some kind of formality put around that, like a civil partnership or a wedding potentially. I sort of assumed also that maybe I would have children um, and that I would buy a nice house, you know, a nice terraced house with bay windows and three floors and um, I would be able to invite my family to stay with me. And that would basically set me up for two to three decades of life occasions that people would participate in with me. When I was in my 20s and I began to get invited to people's weddings or their housewarmings or um, their engagement parties and then became in, got into my 30s and there were more children being born and um, more weddings... And, you know, I accumulated all of this kind of um, experience of collective celebration for other people and had none of my own. And like that can't be it can't be like there's a kind of fairness aspect on it. I mean, so many so many of my friends will tot up how much they've spent on other people's weddings. And and like they're kind of there's I don't really mind, but there's kind of begrudging sense of economically this has not been good for me but you know I'm very happy for you I want to I want to celebrate but it's not it's not right that we don't we we only focus on those sorts of events I just I think like it goes against my sense of 
what is important in life and also just like like equality <laughs> just it just feels like prizing these things which are actually driven by kind of state forces and economics you know the the desirability of the family unit as a kind of political engine for making things happen um when that's not part of your life um I kind of want to reject it rather than like getting really entrenched in the kind of poor me feelings about like well I'm not gonna get (laughs) I'm not gonna get married and nobody's organizing me a hen party or you know whatever whatever those things are I thought I, I am empowered to decide what is important in my life and ask people to if they would want to join me in marking those occasions and it felt like a little bit embarrassing to make a fuss about some things, but actually people were have been, and I've been really lucky, like really, really receptive to that. And, you know, that might mean we're going to organise this beautiful cake for your book launch and it's going to be iced with your book name and we're all going to dress up and make a fuss. Those things as like, as a single person knowing that um, actually I am entitled to ceremonial occasions of my own and can designate importance to things outside of your kind of traditional progression into adulthood means a lot to me. And so your friends are like a good presence in this book, like they're sort of woven throughout. I'm interested to hear how your relationship to your friend group has been different from maybe it would have been other who knows like you can't do an alternate history of how your life would have gone differently if you had been partnered throughout this time but I wonder it seems like you maybe have a sort of an altered relationship to friendship because of how things have turned out you're pretty honest about the fact that you've been jealous and and angry and annoyed at them in different ways um but then they've also shown up for you in different ways and you've shown up for them than maybe would have been the case if things had gone more traditionally. How do you sort of approach that in your book? So I definitely I definitely write in the book about things that I was too cowardly really to talk to friends about at the time. So one of the things that I used to find really difficult and don't so much now because I've kind of, you know, pierced the bubble of the distress, I guess it was causing me, was nursing friends through repeated breakups, you know, like major breakups, the same friend, you know, going through several relationships and investing a lot of my kind of care and attention in their romantic life. And at the time, I experienced that as a kind of sense of um, anxiety and panic. And it was only several years later that I was able to really pinpoint the fact that I wasn't feeling anxious and panicked. I was feeling angry. I was feeling jealous. I was feeling fed up of always being the recipient of people's romantic grief um, and never sort of being an actor, I guess, in romantic grief of my own because I didn't have relationships that would warrant that kind of status. Um, And I kept a lot of my own romantic griefs to myself. And I think part of that was because I wasn't having relationships that people would acknowledge as as proper relationships because they had no status. Um, Or I would be kind of hiding bits of relationships because they were with, um, you know, someone who was unavailable. And I think now 
you know the friends that I've got around me I'm I'm much more <laughs> committed to being honest and be you know be owning my feelings to stuff rather than being passive aggressive or withdrawing from a conversation or a, a, you know a friendship because it's it's needled a little bit of my own anxiety or 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 pain about about romantic love what I've envied in some of my friends is the fact they have a romantic partner and I th- kind of think oh you know that person can just help you deal with bad things that might happen in your life and they won't question it you won't even have to ask whereas I will have to ask one of my friends and um to help me so I talk in the book about um having an injury where I had to go um to hospital and I even had a friend offer to come with me but I was being so like stoic and oh it's terrible that I've got no one to help me that I didn't even let her do that and and so like part of it is like confronting my own pride and sense that I have to just do everything alone and actually take responsibility for asking for the help and support that I need and and being upfront about it and it's hard to talk about this stuff because it's not like I have cured myself of the the kind of residual shame or you know occasional humiliation or anger or just you know sadness and sorrow not having romantic love play a big role in my life I'm never going to be cured of that but but I've got to find a way to like live alongside that and um, not constrain myself or, you know, sort of hit this sort of weird glass ceiling of life because I've told myself there's no kind of progressing to the next level. So I, I guess I'm just trying to build up the tolerance, the, the resilience, um, overcome the kind of feelings of, sh- of shame Um, and sadness about it by thinking it through with other people which is what the book is kind of allowing me to do Amy, thanks so much for joining us here on The Waves Thank you so much for having me Rebecca it's been so lovely to talk to you about this Well that's our show this week The Waves is produced by Shana Roth Daisy Rosario is Senior Supervising Producer Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves at slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different host, different topic, same time and place. Thank you so much for being a Slate Plus member. And since you're a member, you get this weekly bonus segment. And today, Amy and I are going to talk about Joni Mitchell. So Joni Mitchell is a very strong presence in um, Amy's book, Arrangements in Blue. It's just sort of working off of the seminal Joni Mitchell album, Blue. All right, Amy, tell me about it. When did you start loving this album? And is it your favorite Joni Mitchell album? (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, I think it is my favorite Joni Mitchell album album oh I don't want to commit to it (laughs) um so I first heard blue when I was 14 I borrowed it on cassette from my older sister Rebecca and I had a friend over for a sleepover and 
we had the lights off and I had my lava lamp on and we were listening to it on cassette in the dark and she just started her periods and I was like, oh my God, this is like really a, a kind of important life change that's happening for us. We, we're going towards womanhood and um, all of those kind of things. And her kind of voice just kind of comes out of the, you know, into the dark. I am on a lonely road um, and I am traveling. And I was just absolutely captivated from the first moment. I am on a lonely road and I am traveling, 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 looking for something. What can it be? Oh, I hate you some. I hate you some. I love you some. I think one interesting thing that reading your book sort of taught me about that album is that it's it is also like ambivalent about romantic love. Like it's also uh, ambivalent or um like there's a really different moods addressed in the different songs in a way that I hadn't really picked apart until reading your book. Weirdly, I always felt that the al- like the album feels too short for what's in it. It is there's such a lot and I think it's only like half an hour long the album. It goes through so much terrain and people like will call it like a great breakup album. Um but there were, you know, passionate love songs on there. There and but there's also this kind of current of transformation of loss and renewal and trying to transform through that and she was so young I think when she wrote this album it kind of blows my mind because I still I'm still finding wisdom in it and obviously when I was writing I was listening to the songs in a kind of different way that than I know I mean to be honest I don't normally listen to it I normally sing it to you know to myself and you know when my friends are over and we were drinking wine we're like right we're gonna put Joni on we're gonna sing it from start to finish like the whole album which must be one of like my least appealing habits <laughs> and you know <laughs> definitely not going to support my romantic romantic endeavors but um <laughs> Or maybe you never know. <laughs> yeah, you never know. <laughs> yeah, and it's it, it's just I find I, it feels like this this kind of epic epic story that kind of starts with her, you know, stating all of these things that she wants in this very very giddy way, and ends with her in a dark cafe, you know, um, kind of reeling from a conversation with a cynical friend, and promising her own transformation and I, I just find that really exciting you like roses and kisses and pretty men to tell you all those pretty lies pretty lies when you're gonna realize they're only pretty lies let's talk about a couple of specific songs on it so what's your favorite song on blue oh no <laughs> and and what's your least favorite is there any song on it that you think should have been left off i think it's perfect no song should leave blue um if you really want to push me to say like my least favorite it's probably this flight tonight why can you explain it's really hard to sing, so I'll say that, you know, so that uh, I'm, they're all quite hard to sing, but it kind of jumps up and down quite a bit. And for me, it's like the least musically 
melodically satisfying. The thing is, like, this flight tonight, it's followed by River, then A Case of You, and then the last time I saw Richard, you've got these three sort of powerhouses, and I think it just shrinks in comparison to that, you know? You've got these three masterpiece songs that go in a row towards the end of the album, so it would be really difficult to pick between those three. Uh, for me, I did say the other day, because somebody asked me if I had to pick three Joni Mitchell songs, I did choose The Last Time I Saw Richard just because I think it's such a complex song and it's where this kind of real conflict comes up in Joni. You know, she's getting angry at herself and at Richard and this kind of um, the push and pull of wanting love and wanting to retreat from it is so evident in that song I find it really interesting but it, on another day it would be a case of you or it would be river or it would be the kind of giddy pleasure of Carrie or it you know or it would be the kind of quiet intimacy of the title track blue it's just or, or California you know which just makes me beam with happiness when I sing it that was just some of our Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, go to slate.com slash the waves plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Slate.com slash the waves plus. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.